be reading in Matthew chapter number 24. Um, I've got just a few verses today that I'm going to read to open this text and to kind of dialogue, and then I'm going I'm to take you into something that, that I've studied in great detail, and then I'm going to throw a curveball at you that you didn't see coming. And uh, so it, it's, going to, uh, it's going to be a really uh, directive word today. Uh, I pray that God gives me the strength to speak it. Matthew 24, familiar passage. I'll give you clarity. It's three verses here. Verse 32 through 34 says, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. I'm kind of choosing this text because I alluded to this a couple of times last week in my message. Now learn a parable of the fig tree when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth the leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise, ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now let's turn back to chapter number 23, which is not the same dialogue of Jesus. I'll explain it to you more in a moment. I want you to understand the historical context of it. But there's one verse of Scripture that I want to tag with this. Even though it's only separated by just a few short minutes from the time that he gave dialogue in chapter number 23 and in chapter number 24. In verse number 36, it says, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So today I want to talk to you from this thought. This or that generation. This or that generation. I want to ask you to pray with me here. Let's pray for God to give us clarity and open our spiritual eyes and understanding and really challenge us. Challenge us individuals. Challenge us as Christians. Challenge us to be acutely aware of the times and the seasons in which we live. And that we will not, uh, the, Jesus said to those of his generation, he said, don't, you don't take a candle and you put it under a bushel. You know, you don't put it under a basket. He said, but you put a candle on a lampstand that it can shine the light, right? And he said, a city set on a hill should not be hid. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father is in heaven. We live in a tumultuous time, but it is not time for us to shrink away in fear. It is time for us to live with a passion and a zeal for Christ like never before. Amen? Father, we love you. We're humbled to be in this house and grateful for this privileged opportunity. I pray today, God, that I have adequately judged myself, that I won't stand in front of the church family with hypocrisy deep within my own heart, Father, but I will hear, be here today with sincerity, Father, knowing that there, I am flawed, knowing that the Scripture says I have treasure in an earthen vessel, that the excellency may be of God and not of ourselves. Today, Lord, let the Spirit of God speak to the people, and may we, Father, be challenged by this message, this or that generation. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Let me take you into just a little bit of, not necessarily theological discussion, because I'm not a theologian, and I would lack the uh, education to be able to do so, but... I, can, I do have basic Bible understanding, and I like to kind of put things in the right context for just a moment and then try to make it, put it in necessarily perhaps its modern context. What I mean by that is um, what, it, what, what it can apply to us here today. But in Matthew 23 and 24, this particular narrative that we see Matthew's recording is in the last week of Jesus' life. And it's in a tumultuous week because his ministry has been followed closely by 
the religious leaders for the three and a half years, from the day that he rocked the house at Nazareth when he read from the scroll of Isaiah the prophet and announced that it was fulfilled in their ears that day. Since that time, he had been watched by the scribes of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, and he had had multiple altercations with them, verbal altercations. They had took up stones to stone him on more than one occasion, only for him by the anointing of God to be protected and hidden uh, to, to keep them from stoning him. But we know that it has reached a feverish point. They have plotted against him. They have assigned people to lie against him. They've paid privately Judas of Iscariot to betray him. And Jesus is not backing down. Jesus is still doing what he does, and that is he's teaching and challenging the people. And in the 23rd chapter, I write it this way, it is a scathing rebuke of the Pharisees. The entirety of those 39 verses that are recorded there is a scathing rebuke primarily of their hypocrisy that I'm going to allude to in just a moment of time. That's the 23rd chapter. When Jesus finishes this, we don't have a record of what the reaction was of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sanhedrin when they heard the scathing rebuke. We don't have a record of what their immediate response was. All we know is that when Jesus finished reproving them verbally and audibly, he left, crossed, he was in Jerusalem, he was in the temple square, but he crossed the Kidron Valley and he went up to the Mount of Olives. That's the place that he often chose to resort with his disciples. That takes us into the 20. That doesn't take very long. That's just a few short minutes journey for him and his disciples to leave the temple, cross the valley, go up to the mountain there where you could see the temple and all of its grandeur. And as they were seated there, the disciples then were in awe of the wonder and the beauty of the temple of Jerusalem. And I talked about the temple just a little bit last week. If you were here, you may remember this. And that's where we pick up the 24th chapter. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's the Olivet Discourse because he's on the Mount of Olives. And he responds to, first, the, uh, the observation of the disciples. When they looked across at the temple, they said, look at the beauty of the temple. Look at how glorious it is. And, 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 and its grandeur and its marvelous, uh, you know, its architectural design and all these things. And Jesus just uh, literally shocked them with these words. And he said, that's in the second verse there when he said, there won't, there's going to come a day when all the stones that you see that's holding up that beautiful temple are going to be overturned. And that when they got fully to the Mount of Olives, that's when they said, tell us. And this third verse here is kind of where they ask three questions. Matthew records three questions. Mark and Luke record two. And, but you have to be very careful because this sets the course of uh, controversy in modern-day theology. It's in this third verse that they said, they asked him, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And that's a heavy-packed question, isn't it? That's a one verse with a lot when is this going to happen? How do we know it's about to happen? And what's the sign of the end of the world? But there's a little bit more to that end of the world that we have to talk about. And so Matthew 24 is biblically controversial in the context of this right here. I used this phrase last week. So if y'all stay with me, I'm going somewhere. Eschatology. Eschatology is known as the study of end times. And Every person that, like myself that's gone through any type of ecclesiastical training at any type of higher education 
which every, like, like, like Jojo and Shane and Jace and myself and Brent and now Aaron and Chelsea and others among us, we've, we've all had to study some vein of what's called eschatology, the study of end times. And this, but the, oftentimes what happens, though, is all that you're ever exposed to is what's the main belief system of the people group that you function amongst. And you never get really because people are afraid. People are afraid to expose people to other veins of thought because they're afraid that they might actually be influenced by that vein of thought. And so oftentimes, that I've seen this in the Southern Bible Belt for the many years that I've been a part of the church, that I've went many years without learning anything about eschatology other than through the vein of what's known as dispensationalism. Now, I'm not going to go into all that today, but that's the context that there's distinct dispensations. We're in the dispensation of the church, and there's still the expectation of a dispensation of the Jewish age once again for a seven-year period of time, which God is dealing with the nation of Israel. And that's a thought process that often competes with the thought process known as praetorism. Praetorism looks back. Praetor is Latin for in the past. And praetorism says, well, the things that were written in Matthew 24 were written to that generation, and it's called fulfilled theology, and it's not futuristic theology. But there are those that hold, and primarily most of the people that are in the assemblies of God hold to futuristic interpretation. And they look at Matthew 24 as, yes, being applicable to Jesus' generation, but more appropriately being... Uh, being, being pointed towards a time right before the return of Jesus Christ. And y'all have probably looked at it along the way. Have y'all looked at that a little bit along the way? Most people have looked. Uh, when I first got into the Pentecostal movement, we used to sing a song, Matthew 24. Somebody sang a song about Matthew 24 and the signs of the times and, and all of those things. And so I, here's a few things I do want to throw out at you just for a moment real quickly. Verse number three in this, what was Jesus responding to? Just real quickly, he was responding to the question about the temple. And then he goes into this dialogue about the signs of both natural man-made disasters uh, that would definitely fill the narrative that was related to the fall of Jerusalem. So here's the reality, just real quickly. I'm going to jump you ahead in time. You say, when did that take place? When did, was the exact fulfillment of those stones being overturned? This was in 30 A.D. when Jesus gave this prophecy. And 40 short years... How many of you know as the older you get, the 40 seems shorter? When you're a younger person, 40's like, oh my gosh, it's forever. But once you cross a certain age and you get to look back on 40 years, you know, then all of a sudden it doesn't look. 40 short years, short window of time, the temple that Jesus spoke about would be rubble. The city that he had prophesied about earlier to be a city set on a hill that should not be hid would be nothing more than a smoldering ash heap. And the people that he was preaching to, 100, no, 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 800,000 of them, Josephus said, the historian, the Jewish historian who viewed the destruction of the temple, recorded that 800,000 perished in a single day. Thus the writer of Revelation said, blood would run to the bridle of the horse's mouth. Perhaps that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter number 24, from the praetorist view, that tribulation, unlike anything that's ever happened, would fall upon this people. So we have this competing viewpoints from dispensationalists, from praetorists. The dispensationalists say, yes, it happened in the past, but it's more applicable to the future because they believe in anticipation of a third temple and all this conflict. And the praetorists are saying, no, it happened in the past. And what I've often decided as I've looked at it is, if we're not careful, we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
And we're going to miss a more prophetic word for us that speaks to us today. And it's not necessarily referencing Jerusalem or Israel. There's a prophetic word that we have to guard ourselves right here as American Christians. And I'm going to share that with you in a few moments. In this passage of Scripture in the 32nd and the 34th verse, we read that about the fig tree. And Jesus said that the fig tree, when it begins to cast its leaves, you know summer is nigh. He said when all these things start to take place, you'll know it's about to be fulfilled. And he was prophetically warning the people of his generation. Did you know that historians tell us not a single Christian perished in the fall of Jerusalem? Why? Because they remembered the warning of Jesus. And when Rome began to surround the city, they began to evacuate Whereas the Jews ran into the city expecting God to protect them, but the Christians vacated and God supernaturally protected them and gave them wisdom. This is a thought that we have to consider. In that passage in Matthew 23 and also in Matthew 24, the term generation. This generation, Jesus said, this generation will not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And I've often settled this in my own heart. This generation never meant that generation. What does that mean? This generation, I'm going to be honest, in the context of Matthew 24, I'm more of a praetorist. I think he's speaking to the generation that was right in front of him, not necessarily to our generation. Maybe there are some things that are directly applicable. But I have to be very, very careful is that what I want to guard myself from is that I, want to, I don't want to fail to understand there is a prophetic practical application to every person that has an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let's go there in just a moment. Jesus reproved people. Who was, why did he even give such a dialogue? And what happened? Have you ever thought about this? What happened? Why was the, why, why, what led to the destruction of the temple? And every, what led to that moment? Jesus reproved people who often honored God with their lips but their heart was far from him. And we often overlook this when we start talking about our eschatology and the end of time and all of these things. If you search the scriptures, here's what Jesus really had, a, had an issue with. He, he reproved the Pharisees primarily for their hypocrisy. Because look in the fourth verse of the 23rd chapter. I want you to see what he said as he reproved them. In the fourth verse. He said, because here's what they do. They bind heavy burdens on people. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. And so he's reproving them for their hypocrisy throughout the entirety of the text. And so I sat down and I said, you know what, rather than focusing about the signs that are listed in Matthew 24 of wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and tribulations and earthquakes and all the things that we often see doomsday preachers share about our generation. I'm not even going to focus on that. And I'm going to look back and I'm going to see what was so heavy in the heart of Jesus that he looked at the religious leaders of his day and with his finger he pointed them, pointed right on their faces and he gave them the most scathing rebuke in all the word of God. What was he so agitated by? Well, here's what I've discovered when I began to just write these things down and kind of look at them in this context. This is a brief overview. They bind heavy burdens, but they won't move them with their own fingers. They work only to be seen of men. They desire positions of prestige, garments of distinction. They want to be called rabbi, teacher, and master. They shut up the kingdom of heaven. They shut up. They keep people away from the truth of the gospel. They do everything that they can. They devour widows' houses while they make a long prayer. 
They go all over the world to make a proselyte to their cause and to their mindset. The temple means nothing to them, but the gold of the temple means everything. Mm. They swear by the gift on the altar, but they won't even recognize the altar. They tithe currency and coin, but they omit the weightier matters of the law, judgment, faith, and mercy. Well, I'm preaching way better than y'all shouting already. They strain at a gnat, but they'll swallow a camel. They make the outside clean, but the inside was wicked. They look like a sepulcher or a tomb. They've got it adorned with flowers and ornaments. It looks good on the outside, but Jesus said on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. They outward appear righteous, but within, verse 28 of 23rd chapter, he said, you're full of hypocrisy and you're full of iniquity. You're the children of those who killed the prophets, and Jesus said, you're a generation of vipers. He said, not only are you a generation of vipers, but you're going to persecute all that I send to you. You're going to follow them from city to city. Every prophet, wise man, scribe, pastor, teacher, evangelist, apostle, prophet that I send to you. He said that the blood of all the righteous men from every generation until this generation is going to be required of this generation. That was what I surmised when I looked at that text and I said, dear God, we got to be very careful because we're living in a similar season. This generation is starting to look a lot like well, 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 like that generation. I thought about this. I said, what hindered the people? Have you thought about this in John's gospel? The Bible says Jesus came into his own and his own received them not. He did miracles unlike anybody. You would think when you saw somebody walking across the sea, when you saw somebody opening blind eyes and unstopping deaf ears, you'd be like, my God, I'm going to fall. That's, that's from God. But he came into his own, and his own received him not. The very people that paraded him and welcomed him into the city and laid their coats in front of him as he entered into the city riding on the foal of a donkey just a few short hours later perhaps were in the same crowd crying, crucify him, crucify him. That's how fickle his generation was. He even condemned them previously or reproved them when he said, what do I like in this generation? He said, I can't play the music that you, I play sad music and you won't mourn. I play happy music, you won't dance. I can't satisfy the things that you're asking for. And so he had this strong reproof. And I thought about this. You know what? Number one, their minds and their hearts were blinded by the God of this world. Let me go ahead and just tell you that there is a stupor, a spiritual stupor that can literally fall on the minds of even rational, reasonable men until they suddenly become irrational. They can't see what's obviously seen by the rest of us. They look at one thing and see it exactly opposite. We can put two plus two in front of them, and in today's modern math, that'll be 78. Their minds and hearts are blinded by the God of this world. We, have, we cannot fail to recognize that we still have spiritual wickedness hid in heavenly places, that we're warring not with flesh and blood, but the God of this world is blinding the minds of men and women. Number two, hypocrisy. We're going to, that Jesus firmly reproved men for their hypocrisy. Man, I judged my heart today. I said, dear God of heaven, I'm going to preach this message and talk about hypocrisy. Let me make sure the first person I'm pointing that finger at 
is looking right here at myself. They also, they, they were self-justified. They heard the truth and they rejected the truth. And it's not that they didn't consider themselves justified. It's just that they only justified themselves according to their own conditions of truth. Definitely sounds like our generation. False prophets led the people in error. False prophet can be, does not have to be a, a teacher, a preacher, a parishioner. doesn't have to be somebody in a clergy outfit whatsoever. It can be anybody. It can be a talk show host. It definitely can be a Hollywood personality. We are living in a generation today when the loudest voice speaking into the consciousness of our generation is not even our distorted political leaders, and it's certainly not the church, which God always intends the church to be the greatest influence on a nation, but it is Hollywood personalities and entertainers that their voice resounds throughout our culture today. And many of them are false prophets. I don't care if they play the guitar. I don't care. It does not matter. But they can still be used of the enemy to teach and influence people in an unscriptural method. Jesus said iniquity would abound. The love of many would grow cold. Now Jesus rebuked both the leaders and the followers of of Judaism for incorrectly applying the scriptures. Their religion was corrupted by the state. They desired positions of prestige and power. They had a false humility, and they had a pretense about caring for the poor. Did y'all hear that? I said they had a pretense. Anybody can stand up and say, I care for the poor. I want to see you live. Mother Teresa cared for the poor. She lived on the streets of Calcutta. There's a lot of people today, Hollywood personalities and wicked political leaders that claim they care for the poor. When they don't care for the poor, they only use that as a means to elevate their own prestige and power. And I'm going to preach it whether y'all respond or not. Jesus called the listen to what the Pharisees called Jesus Beelzebub. Look at what happens when truth confronts error. They called Jesus Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies. They called him a liar and a religious heretic, and they called him a false prophet. Here's what he called them. He called the Pharisees hypocrites. Now, I know that the world wants us to paint a picture of Jesus, and he's just, as it's been mentioned today, the good shepherd that gave his life for the sheep, and he's quiet and meek and lowly, and yes, he is, but I'll tell you what, he loves truth, right? He said, Father, thy word is truth, and he'll stand up for the truth of God. And Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites, He called them wicked. He called them adulterers. He said, you're a wicked and adulterous generation. And he called them a generation of vipers. He was not trying to win any popularity contest. He wasn't trying to make it on CNN News or Fox News. He did not care. He had an agenda. He said, for this end I was born. I came to declare the truth. The reason why they hate me is because I've spoken the truth unto them. Thank God for men and women that have the courage to bury their head in the Word of God and allow the Word to get inside them and have the courage to lift their voices and say, let me share with you the truth. 
I'm going to speak it in love. I'm not going to do it with malice and jealousy and envy and hatred in my heart. But God forbid that I don't share with you the truth. Thank God for a generation of men and women. So I was contemplating this. And I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and talk about this. Hypocrisy abounds in our culture today. More than what you realize. I'm going to allude to this. Did you know recently the Democratic Party honored themselves as the most non-religious party? They use that term, non-religious. Well, let me, uneducated hillbilly preacher, I'm going to go ahead and clarify for you. There is no such thing as non-religious because your non-religious ideology is your religion. Because you follow it, you feed it, you bow before it, and you bend your will and your emotions to propagate it. You're just like the Jews of old. You'll go all over the world to make one proselyte to your mindset. Political views evolve from our religious and moral, moral views. And they cannot be separated. I'm just going, they cannot be separated. Years ago, it was often said, you cannot legislate morality. You remember that? Now, some of you that are young, you don't, because you see that being practiced in our culture today. But see, years ago, that was on the, what's called the left side or the democratic side. They would say, we can't, because when people would try to do things, you know, we can't legislate morality. But we sure attempt to do that today. We try to look into the heart of people and try to determine what we think it ought to be in their heart to be and to do. So Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees was both religious and political. Did y'all know that? Let me go ahead and clarify that for you today. Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees was both religious and political. His rebuke was primarily for hypocrisy. His rebuke was culturally relevant to his day. He was addressing issues that affected the people's morality. And so I thought, you know what? It worked for him. They killed him two days later, but nonetheless, it worked for him that I'm going to share with you today, too. I felt empowered. I said, let me try this. I want to expose some of the hypocrisy that I see culturally relevant to our generation. Number one, I want to expose, which we talk about, I don't have time to develop it, the lie of evolution and its hypocrisy. It's woven into the public school system of education. From the time that we get little small children, we give them their little books, and we say this was the dinosaurs, and they were on the earth eight trillion years ago until a meteorite came six trillion years ago, and then they all disappeared, and, and it's just fully accepted into the hearts and the minds. It's woven into uh, our movies. We've got the missing link coming out now. Did you know that? There's a children's movie that's coming out, the missing link. It's propagating a myth and its intent is to disqualify the scriptures. That's at, we are wrestling with spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. And if I can get you doubting the word of God as towards the Genesis, then I can get you doubting the word of God towards every area. And so, how about this, real quickly? Look at our application of this theology for just a moment. It, too, is hypocritical. We teach children they're evolved animals. And then when they grow up to act like an animal, we throw them in jail. Well, they're going to do what you told them they are. Since they were this small, you're just a mass of humanity that suddenly appeared billions of years ago. And there is no moral uh, absolute. There's no moral truth. There is no God. And, and then we wonder why men are going around killing each other. 
I wonder what would happen if we taught people that they're made in the likeness and the image of God. I wonder what would happen if we take our children and we line them up and say, let me tell you about a God that so loved you that you are sinful. Yes, you, little Johnny, seven years old. Yes, Lee, little Leroy, eight years old. You're a sinner and you need a Savior. So that when I was eight, I could raise my hand and say, yeah, I've sinned. I've lied. I've cheated. I've had sin in my heart. I need a Savior. And I could bow my knee and put my faith in the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross and I could get saved. Wonder what that would do to our culture today. No, 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 no. We ain't got time for that. No, 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 because that, that, that wouldn't fit our narrative. Number two, let me just keep on going. How about this? This is a hot topic, diversity and inclusion. Well, it's, oh, Jesus. I wore my wristband up here today that said, Jehu said, throw her down. Jehovah is he. Because I knew I would need the strength of God to go ahead and address some of these issues. Diversity and inclusion, here's what it's defined. Let me define, this is how it's defined by our culture today. It means the acceptance of the homosexual transgender movement. That's what it means. That's not what it should mean, but that's what it's come to mean. That you'll either both accept it and approve it, or you will be excluded for not being inclusive. Now, let's, I want to think on that for just a moment. If being exclusive, excluding people because of a viewpoint is wrong and you do the same back to me because I don't agree with you, though I don't have malice in my heart or hatred or any such thing, just because I'm not going to affirm it or approve it does not mean I think little of someone. But you're going to exclude me Because I'm not inclusive. Doesn't that make you a hypocrite? I'm just saying, I don't know. Maybe y'all don't see things the way that I'm seeing these things. Here's another one today. Racial equality. That's another hot topic. I understand. Formerly called equal rights. Now implied in our generation as special rights. Let me go a little further. True racial prejudice and hatred should be condemned. Absolutely. I didn't live through some of the things that people older than me may have seen and maybe been a part of or observed. I can't fathom the hatred that perhaps has been propagated and been, people have been hurt and wounded. But I can say this, I wasn't alive in those days. Can I fully be held responsible for the thing that I had no part in? Let me go a little bit farther, since y'all are real quiet on me on this one. That's okay. I'm going to go ahead and say this. All racial prejudice is not just white against black or white against Hispanic. You can be black and be prejudiced against white or Hispanic. You can be Hispanic and be prejudiced against Asian. One African-American preacher said, brother, it's not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. Just I know America gets a lot of the bad rap for the African slave trade. And I can't imagine. My heart has wrenched when I've read the history of what took place. But slavery has not just been in that culture, just the African culture. Did you know, this might shock you, but did you know only 6% of the African trade took place in America? The rest was around the world. 
But it's made to be that just Americans. Well, I want to go ahead. I'm not trying to defend slavery in any capacity. I condemn it. I would hope that I would have been one of the preachers in that generation to stand up and condemn it as evil in the sight of God. That's what I would have hoped. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I want to say this. Less than 100 years from the conception of the United States of America, we fought the bloodiest war in our history. And over 600,000 white men died to give black men their freedom. So somewhere along the line, we got to be very careful of swinging the pendulum all the way over to the other side. Just because I'm a white person doesn't mean that I'm prejudiced against black folk. Matter of fact, I've always kind of emulated the black community. That's why I call myself Leroy Brown. And that's not even popular anymore. I'm getting aggravated because they're taking my favorite black preachers who used to stand up and they had a suit on and that they were so distinguished and they preached with such an anointing and such a vocabulary. And now they're wearing skinny jeans and leather jackets and I'm shaking my head in disgust. Because I've always emulated in that culture and appreciated it. And I can recognize a distinction both in racial or in culture and do so without malice and hatred in my heart. And actually, it's appreciation more than the other. In similar theory, did you know that this is, I'm preaching anyhow. Lord, if it's just Sherry, she may be the only one left here today when it's all said and done. But if it's just Sherry, I'm going to preach it anyhow. This is getting on my nerves right here too. Recently, Recently, certain states chose not to participate in Columbus Day because it was oppressive, it spoke of white supremacy, it was racist, slavery, and sexism. So rather, they said, let's have Indigenous People Day. Now, that's the truth. I'm just telling you. But now, doesn't history tell us that indigenous tribes in America often warred with neighboring tribes where the victor tribe would slaughter the men, enslave the children, and take the women for themselves. Now, what about this? Guns create violence. That's a hot topic too, right? So here's the ideology on this. If we pass more laws and manufacture less guns and ammo, then we're for sure going to have less violence. Well, let me ask you this question. Passing more drug laws, has that kept us from manufacturing more drugs and trafficking drugs? I wonder this. What if we stop making violent movies? What if we stop putting children for hours in front of, of movies and television filled with violence and violent video games where we're shooting and massacring people? And taking away and desensitizing people to death. I wonder what would happen there. And I wonder what would happen if we stopped teaching evolution. And started teaching our children they were made in God's likeness. I wonder if that might curb violence just a little bit more. Now I want to say this. We all agree this is a complex subject. I'm not here to say I, got the, I don't have the answers to this. Every one of us are horrified when there's a mass shooting. But the media 
most often overlooks that at any weekend in Chicago, 10 plus people will lose their lives on the streets in Chicago. But it won't make the media because it doesn't fit the narrative. Listen very carefully. Y'all going to think that this is some type of racist statement. It's not. I'm going to wrap around on you. So you got to stay with me on this. The reason it doesn't fit the narrative is that many times and typically, and I know that that's stereotyping and all that a little bit, but often the crime is black on black. Closer evaluation reveals the highest rate of violence is not white on black or black on white. The highest rate per populace is black on black. The liberal community tells us that's because they are socially disadvantaged. But there are others that argue and say that that's not the case. There's a lot of government programs that can help offset that social disadvantage. But could it be linked to this, that three-fourths of all African-American children are raised in a fatherless home? Oh, but no, Pastor Brown, you can't say that because then you're saying that the sexes are separate and they are equal in value to God, but they're distinct in their roles and their responsibilities. And I'm here to tell you, men are needed. Black men, white men, Hispanic men, Asian men, red men. I don't care what color you are. We need husbands and fathers in the home playing the man. And it would change the entire narrative of this country. But see, the spirit of Jezebel says, we don't need that. No, no, we don't need that. That disagrees with the equality of the sexes. But you cannot tell this generation because they're under the duping power of that spirit. Are y'all out there today? I'm just telling you, you know what I call this? Hypocrisy. Just like Jesus condemned it in his generation, I'm going to stand on my pulpit and condemn it in my generation. It's hypocrisy. I could tell you a few more, and I will as I close. I heard somebody's phone beep, and that usually means, Pastor Brown, you need to wrap up. Let me throw a couple, th- few things out here. Alyssa, you're familiar with Echo Park, aren't you? How far is that from where you love, live and serve? That is it. That's right. Dream Center's right beside Echo Park. Echo Park is uh, recently, someone went through Echo Park with a survey, and it was to save the bald eagle, the eggs, protect the unborn eagle. And every couple and person, individual they came to and said, would you like to sign to protect the bald eagle? said, I want to protect the bald eagle. Somebody even said, dadgummit eagles are people too. (laughs) They didn't throw the dadgummit in there, but I did because I'm a hillbilly. It sounded better. Got to talk the language. But what they didn't know was underneath that petition was another petition they put right in front of the same person who just said, Eagles are people too. Would you sign to support the unborn children? And the very people that said, Eagles are people too, said, No, I am pro choice. I call that hypocrisy. I call that delusion. I call that the spirit of Antichrist at live in our generation. Few other thoughts and I'll close. 
Homelessness will stop if we build permanent homeless shelters. No homelessness will only increase as more people become dependent upon the government to do for themselves what they could do, to do for them what they could do for themselves. I'm not saying we don't need homeless shelters. We need homeless shelters. But when you erect permanent homeless dwellings, everybody's going to suddenly be homeless. I could see it. You'd think, if we stop drug trafficking at the border, we'll curb the drug epidemic in America. Only when you stop the demand will you stop the supply. Socialism will solve all of our country's woes. Socialism will lead to communism and eventually to despotism. The people who propagate it are the biggest hypocrites of all. The biggest hypocrites of all are the ones that are propagating it while they take from you. Here's another. Jesus loves you. That's the entire gospel. That's a lie. That's not the entire gospel. That's part of the gospel. Let me give you, I can be culturally relevant. I don't watch this Satan show like some of you do. It's called The Bachelorette or The Bachelor. Yeah, I said it. That's what I told my girls when they were watching it. I said, that's a Satan show. And so if you do it, you got to do it on your own time, not on my time. And so because I knew where it was going to head, where it's where it is now. It's not just dating a bunch of guys to pick out the one you like. It's going to move to have sex with a bunch of guys to pick out the one that you might like. And so recently, there was one where there was uh, sexual interaction between one of the contestants. And one of the, not the one that was involved sexually, one of the others, you say, Pastor, how do you know that? Because I read. I don't watch your little Satan show. Because I'm watching Mountain Men. <laughs> and all the while, I'm saying, Sherry, we're headed to Montana. If they vote me out at the church, we're going to go up into the Ruby Valley with old Tom, and I'll start trapping and skinning beavers. Y'all remember my message, live free or die? I done told you I'll get the dread. Sherry won't shave her armpits or her legs. You're going to fit right in. That's right. You heard it here first. So that's why you can't intimidate me without being, you know, I, I say you can't intimidate me, vote me. If you vote me out, you do me a favor. You send me to the Ruby Mountains of Montana. Huh. So let's go a little bit further. So the, the young girl, unfortunately, that, that became known that she had had sexual uh, contact or sexual experiences with uh, one of the other contestants. In her defense of it, as she spoke to one of the guys or about one of the guys that had a genuine Christian conviction and didn't want to participate, she said these words, Jesus still loves me. Well, you know what? That's never the question. That's an established truth. Jesus does love you. But the question is, do you love Jesus? That's the part of the equation that gets left out when we present the gospel today. If you really love Jesus, then you follow his commands. Here's perhaps as I close, the great, I know I'm taking a long time, but wherever else place wherever you got to go, then to be right here to hear the end of this message. Here's the greatest myth I believe that is being propagated on the American people today. And why are you doing this, Pastor Brown? Because I'm just trying to do what Jesus said, what he did. But I'm speaking it culturally relevant to our generation. I'm not going to talk about storms and 
we, some folk trying to tell us now the next hurricane's because Trump's in office. Well, you know what? When Obama was in office, it, we weren't, it wasn't because he was in office. You know what? how long the hurricanes have been in the ocean coming up on the seaboard since the fall of Adam? It's ridiculous. Don't even get us started. Here's the greatest myth that's being propagated. Here it is. Listen to this as we close. Our democracy, as they call it, was designed to govern a secular people. That's what's being propagated. Let me clarify. Our republic, not democracy, was designed to govern a religious people. Let me read to you. Let me read to you from John Adams when he addressed the Massachusetts militia in October of 1798. This would not fly in today's Army, Air Force, Navy, or Marine, or Coast Guard, but it flew in his day. While our country remains untainted with the principles and manners which are now producing desolation in so many parts of the world, while she continues sincere and incapable of insidious and impious policy, we shall have the strongest reason to rejoice in the local destination assigned us by providence. Providence in the mind of the, of, of the leader of that day was God. Correct? But should the people of America once become capable of that deep simulation towards one another and towards foreign nations, which assumes the language of justice and moderation, while it is practicing iniquity and extravagance. What he's saying is if we're saying one thing to the nations of the world while we're practicing something else, and we display in the most captivating manner the charming pictures of candor, frankness, and sincerity while we are rioting in insolence and hatred, this country will be the most miserable habitation in the world because we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry will break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a well goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And so, what a warning was given to us by one of the founding fathers. In in conclusion today, while the theological camps take Matthew 23 and 24 and argue over the fig tree and over Israel and wars and rumors of war, this generation or that generation, I wrote it this way, the very things that rotted that generation is rotting away our culture right in front of our eyes. Here's the scary part. And they say, Pastor, are you a doomsday? I'm not a doomsday preacher. But, but just be 40 years after that message was given, the beauty and the wonder of the temple was gone to human history and nothing but the smoldering ashes of a once proud religious people remained. This generation is quickly becoming that generation And we will reap the harvest 
of godliness, godlessness, iniquity, and hypocrisy if there's not a cultural repentance among us. A cultural. Forty years from now, we will see the overtone, overthrown stones of the American Republic that testify to our iniquity and our hypocrisy. We will. It won't just be monuments that you've seen in our generation, in our day. It will be government, religious institutions, everything that we held sacred and dear will be annihilated. Say, Pastor, you're a, you're a dude. I'm, not t- I'm, not, I'm just saying what happened then can happen today. Jesus' disciples heeded his warning. They suffered, but they avoided the destruction that happened to the Jewish people. The Jewish people were blinded by their own ideology, and they succumbed. Church family, we need to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Today, Pastor Brown, you preached a political blessing. No, yes, I did, because religion and politics are not separable. They're just not. You can say they are, yes, no, no, they're not. Your non-religion is your religion. If that's who you are, I don't think that's who you are, but that's perhaps who some that you know are. It's a dangerous time. I don't have the answers. I don't have all the answers to the social woes. I understand conflict. I understand racial tension. I understand the inequalities that we've seen and happen. And I understand all that. I understand. There's no flat answer. There's no just easy way. You have to work through things. But we have to also guard ourselves to the delusion and the hypocrisy of the generation in which we live today. Guard your heart. Be on fire for God. Be a bright and a shining light. Know the truth and speak the truth in love. Don't be afraid of the power of the truth. 